You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Wow, thank you so much, Deb. That was amazing. It's great to know. And it's great that our church is part of something like this. Uh, It's one of the many things that I love about our church, that we like to try and make a a difference. Well, today's sermon is the second to last in our series in Nehemiah. It's in Nehemiah 13, the beginning and the end of that chapter. Preston will be preaching on the middle of that chapter next week. And it's on relational sins. I'd like to start by this quote from C.S. Lewis. It's great. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. I think that's just so insightful and so well said. And here, he, the implication is your heart could be broken. Your heart could, uh, you could be hurt by others. But there's other implications here too. It's saying that, you know, if you love, you're vulnerable. Other people can affect you. You can be strengthened and pulled toward the good or you can be undermined and you could be compromised and pulled towards things you don't want to. Relationships can build us up or tear us down. You know, over the course of this series, we've really seen uh, Judah at their best and worst, haven't we? We've seen moments where they really shine, and we've seen moments where they've fallen apart, and it's largely because of people in their relationships to the nation and to individuals. The nation's relationship with Nehemiah has been wonderful, hasn't it? Nehemiah was a relative outsider. He was from the court in Persia, King Artaxerxes I. He was a Jew and maybe knew some of the Jews before they uh, moved back to Judea. And he came as a relative outsider with his connections and a whole bunch of backup and helped the country build the wall in 52 days. A phenomenal achievement. And Ezra, as remember a couple weeks ago we said, Uh, Nehemiah brought Ezra involved again, and Ezra taught the people the word of God, and they responded, and there was a sort of national revival that happened, and it was exciting and thrilling, and they made vows to follow God. The relationship that people had with Nehemiah was life-changing, and for the better, but it wasn't that way way with everyone. You see, we're studying Nehemiah 13. Now, between chapters 12 and 13, Nehemiah left. He had to go back to the court uh, in Persia, and Israel was on their own, and the people of Israel were on their own to rise or fall according to their own strength and their own convictions. And I think many people did well, and some did not. Today we'll be looking at the challenge of relationships from three perspectives. The compromise from without, compromise from within, and what it looks like to live authentically. Compromise without, compromise within, and authentic living. So first, let's look at compromise from without. And we're going to read a part of the 
chapter, comment, talk about it, read a bit more, comment, talk about it. We're going to move through the passage this way. I think it's such a long passage, uh, you can kind of get lost in it, so I'm trying to break it down and help it make it a little more memorable. Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest had, put in char- had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with large, a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple, temple articles. And also, the tithes of grain, the new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians and gatekeepers, as well as the con- contributions for the priests. Eliashib here is just sort of described as a priest, but in other passages we find that he's the chief priest, the head honcho of the temple. He's the incredibly influential and important. In Nehemiah 3, earlier on in the book, we see Eliashib was heading up a team of people to build a chunk of the wall right around the sheep gate. It's not exactly clear what the relationship is between Eliashib and Tobiah. Perhaps uh, they were related. Some commentators say, ah, they were probably related by marriage. I'm not sure. I can't find that, but it could be true. Uh, Maybe they were uh, connected through business or professional means. Certainly, they're both important leaders. Eliashib, head of the temple, and Tobiah was the governor of the Transjordan. That's the land east of the Jordan River. Tobiah was close to Sanballat the Horonite the governor of Samaria. Now, as soon as I Samaria, say Samaria, you should go, oh no. Samaria, the Samaritans and the Jews didn't get along. And in fact, earlier in the book of Nehemiah, you'll see over and over again, Sanballat was one of the biggest opponents of the wall. And Tobiah and Sanballat often are pictured side by side. Let me read you a chunk from chapter four just to give you the to illustrate this. When Sanballat heard they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, okay, so this is a pile of people, and he's making a public stand. He said, what are these, those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring those stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? And watch this. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was by his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down the wall of stones. Here we have Sanballat going after them, and Tobiah's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm opposing it. I'm opposing it right along with you, Sanballat. And now, Tobiah is renting a room in the temple. He's opening up shop in the temple. What is going on here? Clearly, they were at odds at the beginning of the book, and now Sanballat and Eliashib, oh, sorry, Tobiah and Eliashib seem to be in business together. You know, it's not clear that Tobiah really has changed much at all. Lots of commentators say, you know, he's the same through and through. He's a static character through this book. But Eliashib, he's the one that's changed. Uh, You know, Tobiah might not be as overt on his attack of the Jews, but he's still there. He's undermining their faith in their life, this time from the inside. He's so close that he looks like he's helping, but he's not. And he's compromising the leadership of Eliashib, creating cracks in his integrity weakening Elisha's ability to lead the people. 
And in Nehemiah's absence, Tobiah saw an opportunity and he jumped for it. He knew that if you want to destroy a people's faith, do it from the inside. So he moved into the temple. You know, sometimes we're thrown off by new relationships in our lives. But it's surprising how often we compromise because someone who's been beside us for months or years or decades keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps pushing and eventually we relent. They become so familiar that we just quit resisting and go along with them. You know, many of us have these kind of peoples in our lives, and we have to remember, when, a people keep, when someone keeps pushing and pushing, it's not that they're necessarily right, it's they're persistent. And that's what I believe is happening here. Tobias slowly got to Eliashib over time. And when Nehemiah left the scene, Eliashib let down his guard. There's no question it's hard being close to someone for a long time who's pushing you to compromise. And yet, look where Eliashib landed. He was the head of the temple and he was compromised. These rooms that had a specific function, he had rented out or leased out and put a foe right there with him. That is, until Nehemiah came back. And let's look now, verse six. But while all this was going on, I, that's Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of uh, Eric Xerxes, king of Babylon, I returned as a king. Sometime later, I asked his permission, and I came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put, now it's rooms, you see that? At first it was room. It seems like he may have had some auxiliary spaces as well. And I put back into them the equipment in the house of God with the grain offerings and incense. Nehemiah took swift action when he returned. He threw all of Tobiah's stuff out and purified the rooms and put them back together again. You know, we have to be careful not to be compromised through our relationships, regardless of how long we've known the person. Pressures from without can compromise us and lead us to sin. In Eliashib's case, it had big consequences. You know, when we read a passage like this, many believers, myself included, and I've heard it in many churches over the years, they read a passage like this and they say, so, therefore, Christians, we should be careful who we associate, and even better, don't have many relationships with unbelievers. Or limit the number of relationships you have with unbelievers, or make sure those relationships aren't very deep. And that kind of teaching has actually been part of the Christian church for years. You even see it in the monastic movements in the Middle Ages, where nuns and monks would separate themselves uh, in abbeys or monasteries and live completely separate lives so they wouldn't be influenced by the uh, influences of the world. And you know, there is some wisdom in this. There is wisdom in separating yourself for a time, sometimes. But I think you can take this too far, and I think we have to be really careful. You know, as some of you know, uh, before I worked at eFree, I was a teacher at Briarcrest College in Saskatchewan, a Christian Bible school at that time, now a Christian college, Christian liberal arts college. 
And its campus was uh, on an old World War II military uh, Air Force base, training base. And it was 15 minutes out of Moose Jaw. And if you read the old documents of that time, the 40s and 50s, one of the reasons they said they bought that property is because it was separated from the world. 15 minutes drive to the nearest city and, you know, get away, uh, isolate yourselves from the influences of the world, grow in Christ in this, you know, really wonderful environment. I can see Briarcrest people here that I know smiling and chuckling and nodding their heads. And, you know, I would say as a prof, many, many students benefited it initially. They found it tremendous in a short time, in the first few months, in the first few weeks that they were there. It was a relief. They felt like, oh, I can think differently. However, I would say it didn't last long. The break was good for a time, but in the long haul, many of us actually needed more adversity to grow. We needed to be pushed, and we would learn to push against it. We actually needed someone to push against us, to challenge us, for us to become strong in our faith and solid in our convictions. So coming apart can be important. And when I talk to people who say, I needed that time, I respect them and believe them. But it's not the end-all, be-all. And some would even argue that the world becomes a much darker place when all the Christians withdraw. We're supposed to be salt and light in this world, and when we isolate ourselves, actually we leave the world in a darker state than it was before. And just an aside, um, some of us realize that a Christian community isn't always that much better than the secular world. We bring our secular natures with us. We bring our sinfulness. We're just as prideful, separated as we are in the world. And it, it wasn't really as much of a Christian community, a, a remarkably different Christian community than you would expect. Sorry, that was an aside. It's a confession is what it was. So while there's downsides in being in relationships with people who tempt us to compromise and sin, there's downsides in not being in those same relationships too. So what's the answer? How can we live a victorious Christian life in this? Just try harder? Well, yes and no. The key is in our hearts. Let's talk about that in just a minute. I want to read another story or two for you first. That's the compromise from out without. Now look at, let's look at the compromise from within. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashod or the language of one of the other peoples, and I did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Now let's pause for a minute here. There's a few cultural things that we're going to have to explain, isn't there? <laughs> Nehemiah is not forbidding intercultural marriages. He's standing against bringing things into our family that compromise our faith. He's not opposing interracial marriages. He's opposing things that we, opposing bringing things or people into our families that compromise our faith. He's holding people accountable to a vow they made in Nehemiah 10, which said we promise, promise we won't give our daughters in marriage to people around us. Now, you've got to remember, in this culture, this 
uh, these were arranged marriages. Now, sometimes the sons had an influence on how, who they married. Remember, Samson certainly had an influence on that. But most of the time, it was the parents taking the initiative. So, you know, it could be that these women came in and, because the men were particularly attracted to them and convinced their parents, you know, these are people I should marry. More likely, it was the parents setting things up in order to build strategic alliances between clans or consolidating power. It, it probably wasn't about romance. That's our 21st century sensibilities reading back on an ancient Near Eastern text. And if the parents were involved, and sometimes even the grandparents, what we see here is whole family systems drifting. The extended family was thinking about what they could gain from this marriage and thinking this is more important than faith in God. The next generation was losing faith, and Nehemiah knew this had to be stopped. Now, the two things that you're all chuckling about there, um, the men were beaten. That feels wrong to us in this culture, doesn't it? You know, 2,500 years ago in the ancient uh, Near East, everybody was beaten for all kinds of things. Uh, we would now say it's a violation of human rights. They would say that's just the way it was. Uh, they killed people for all kinds of things too. So um, in this case, I think we just have to read it and accept the culture that they had, realizing it probably doesn't fit well with us. Now, pulling out the hair, that seems kind of middle schoolish, doesn't it? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's actually a thing in the ancient Near, Near East. Uh, it probably wasn't head hair, it was probably beards. And a man's beard was his pride. A man's beard was his sort of um, status. If you pulled out a man's beard hair, you were insulting him unbelievably, you were uh, marking him as being shamed in the community. People who had their beards pulled out would hide for months until they grew back. What was happening here is Nehemiah was marking these men as saying, these men are not people we want to look up to. These men have humiliated us in front of God's eyes. These men have pulled us apart, pulled us away from the way God wants us to live. These men are not to be looked up to. I've pulled out their beards. Thank goodness those days are past. Well, they wouldn't have much to grip on for me, but... Let's continue. I made them take an oath, that's the men, in God's name and said, you're not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. You're not to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or your relatives. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he, that Solomon, was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now, hear now, that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons uh, of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, and I drove him away. What? 
That last line is sort of thrown in there, but if you think about it, that's audacious. The son, the grandson of the high priest was married to the daughter of Sanballat, one of the chief opposers of the law. He was the guy, the governor of Samaria, and the governor of Samaria is married, is related by marriage to the high priest? You can see how the whole family systems were starting to drift very badly and very quickly. It was shocking. The reason this was put in here was to show how prevalent and how public this drift had become. Now, the reference to Solomon is telling. Remember Solomon was one of the wisest kings who ever lived? It says, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight to the breadth of understanding. And yet, if you read in 1 Kings 11, King Solomon blew it, and it was because of relationships. I read, starting uh, 1 Kings 11, verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides the Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edenites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to his God. Now, let's not minimize this. If Solomon was in this room right now, he'd be the smartest person in the room. Hands down. No offense, but he was. He'd be the wisest person. He had great and broad understanding, and he knew what to do with that understanding to make a good way forward, personally and as far as a nation goes. He was fantastic. And yet, in all his wisdom, relationships were the thing that pulled him down. They compromised him, and all of Israel paid the price. And relationships trip us up too, don't they? Over and over again. Now, why? We're compromised from without. We're compromised from within. Why? They brought the marriages into their, uh, these bad marriages into their, into their families intentionally. Why is it so hard? Well, it's all about the heart. What were the two commandments Jesus affirmed over and over again? Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the key to godly relationships and really the key to the authentic Christian life, loving God and loving neighbor as yourself. Loving God, this command is different in quality than anything else in the Bible. It is the supreme and the defining uh, command to all of us. Some people have tried to explain what does it mean to love God, and they say, well, we love God through loving others. I actually don't read Scripture that way. I think loving God is one thing. Loving others is related, but it actually is somewhat different. God is saying, love me. Now, I know a lot of people who sort of say, well, what, you know, I can't sense God's presence, I, his physical presence. I can't see him. How can I love someone I can't see or can't feel? That's a good question. I think many of us have to travel from time to time. What's it like to 
Love someone who's not with you right now, a great friend, a parent, a spouse, your kids. Don't you still live your lives differently because you love them? Don't you miss them in the evenings? You try and talk to them, you try and communicate with them, you, you long for them, you think about when you're going to see them next, you do things that you know that would bring them joy even though they can't see it, and, and you actually don't do things you know that would dishonor them. We actually do know what it means to love and have them not at least uh, physically present you could sense. But God is with us, and we can communicate to him through prayer, and he communicates to us through reading the word in all kinds of other ways too. God's asking us to love him first. In action, yes, but also in the state of our heart, to love him. And he's asking us next to love our neighbors as ourselves. He's challenging us to order the loves in our life. To order the loves in our life. You know, this idea of ordering the loves in your life was um, actually really developed by a guy um, long ago, Jonathan Edwards. And Arthur David Noggle describes it this way. He's a contemporary writer writing about Edwards' work. He would describe loves of our lives as affections. These affections are deepest desires, the most powerful aspirations, the strongest motivations of the human soul. The affections are the mighty urges of our heart. Our affections ignite us, they kindle our spirits, they set us aflame, they determine how our hearts are tilted, they incline us, lying at the base of everything we are and do. In Jonathan Edwards' somewhat quaint language, these affections we see to be the springs that set men a-going in all the affairs of life. Let me give you an example of, of the ordering of your loves in your life. If some of you have hung out with me at any length, you know, uh, or hiked with me especially, you'll know that one of the th deep loves in my life is ice cream. Uh, I really like ice cream. I really do. There's nothing better than hitting the mountains and then at the end of a long day on the trail, that ice cream shop right beside Zums, you know, in Waterton Town site. Praise God. <laughs> Kindred spirit, thank you. But you know, a number of years ago, when my kids were still living at home, one of my kids developed uh, a lactose intolerance for about a year. And it became very clear that uh, if this one kid of mine ate ice cream, they felt really ill, really sick. And we had developed this sort of informal uh, ritual at the end of the day to all land up in the kitchen and we'd all sit and eat ice cream and sort of debrief. And, or at least me and some of the kids. And we realized that very quickly that we would sit in ice cream and this one kid would sit there and be miserable and be sad. And I realized after a while that this really wasn't what we intended at all. And they started sort of avoiding ice cream. And, and so we started eating something else. Whatever. We just had to figure it out. And I was shocked because after a while I realized I didn't miss ice cream at all. It was off my radar. And then when the lactose intolerance went away, boy, it came back. But, you know... <laughs> It was just such a clear example to me that in the loves in my heart, I loved my kids so much more than ice cream. It wasn't, wasn't even a question. You know, if, 
if it meant having a great conversation with them, I'd eat whatever they wanted. No question. I love them more than ice cream. And you know, I really think that has something to do with the way we relate to God and relate to each other. When we really love God and we really love others, we can put all kinds of things behind us and we don't even notice it because that's the order of loves in our heart. You see, Eliashib loved something more than God. I'm not sure. He either loved the person Tobiah or he loved what Tobiah would bring to his life. Power, success, um, status. We're not sure. But he loved something more than God and so he was ready to compromise. The men of Judah were intermarrying um, because they wanted something more too than God. Whether it was the, the person they married or whether it was the power, affluence, or political alliances or whatever. If they loved God first and foremost, none of these things would have happened. Nehemiah had to address it and I think we can learn from it. So that's the challenge of relationships with compromise from without and within. And now what does it mean to live authentically? What does life look like if we love God first and foremost and second, love our neighbors as ourselves? What does it look like? Well, when we, or if we, love God as the most important thing in our lives, the thing that gives value and meaning to everything else, when our love for God is so strong we think we can't live without it, and the very thought of God pulling out of our lives or God not being there, you know, makes us fall to pieces. When we love God like that, and then we realize we'll never lose it, no matter what we do, no matter how we fail him, that God will love us and we can love God above everything. When we realize that, doesn't that fill us with hope and with peace? Hope because the most important thing in our lives is secure forever. We think that of the very best times in this life and we realize they're just a shadow of what's going to come when finally in eternity we're face to face with God, the one we love most deeply and passionately in our whole lives and it's never going to end. And hope, hope for today, tomorrow, and forever. And you get up every morning and you start your day from this position of strength because you know you're loved and you're valued and you're cherished and you're secure. And it gives us peace in life's struggles, which can be pretty tough sometimes, but we know it. They can't take away what is the most and ultimately important thing in our lives. It gives us hope. It gives us peace. What about loving our neighbors as ourselves? If we always loved our neighbors as ourselves, and I'm saying it carefully that way because I don't, I don't manage that. I don't think you manage that to always love your neighbor as yourself. But if we always did, wouldn't that make us the kind of bosses that everyone would want? someone who cared so much about their employee as well as the bottom line that they made sort of holistic and wise decisions about how to move forward? Wouldn't it make us a great boss, a great friend, a great neighbor? You know, our culture is increasingly polarized. Politics, COVID, climate change, issues of faith, 
a million ways. And as I say, this room gets quieter and quieter. Ken, don't go there. You know, but wouldn't it be easier to talk about these things with people if the other person knew that no matter what, we loved and respected them? That they weren't going to say something that was going to put a chasm between us that would be irreparable? You know, loving each other as we love ourselves makes a huge, huge difference. It doesn't mean we won't want to succeed in our businesses. It doesn't mean that we won't want to provide for our families. It doesn't mean that we won't want to still enjoy some of the good things in life, but they'll have their place. They won't be ultimate things, they'll be important things, and there's a big difference there. Now, just remember, loving neighbor as ourselves does not mean we're a pushover. It doesn't mean we have no boundaries. You know, I talked with a few people this last month, a uh, couple months, who were either in very difficult relational situations or abusive situations that they needed to get out of. And one of the things we always talk about is that it's very unloving to let people around you to continue to sin. I'll say that again. It's very unloving to let people around you continue to sin. If someone's physically or emotionally abusive, it's unloving to let them continue without trying to stop. If someone near you is developing an addiction, it's unloving to turn a blind eye and let them continue. You know, it's hard to know what to do in these situations, believe me. But when we're motivated by love, we have the most backbone that we'll ever have. And when we're motivated by love, we have the most grit that we'll ever have to hang in there. Loving God and loving our neighbors, it's so important. But how can we actually do this? It feels, Ken, like you're saying, just try harder, try harder. I'm tired. Well, you know, you're right. It's what it sounds like, but really there is a tremendously great source of strength, and we have to hang on to that. Worship team, come on up. Our source of strength is the love of God dwelling in us. You see, God loved us before we even knew and before we loved him. God loved us so much he sent his son Jesus to live among us, to experience the challenges of life. He showed us that love could be possible and how to do it. Jesus was so tender and so compassionate, but other times he was so forceful and so angry when he was standing against sin and pushing against injustice. He showed us the depth of love when he died on the cross for our sin, and he proved that hope was eternal when he rose from the dead. When we accept that love and let it dwell in us, it melts our heart and it molds our hearts. It overflows into all the corners of our life, and then it's just living by what's in your heart as we love God and love others around us. God's love God's forgiveness, God's joy in our life is what motivates us in all these difficult things like relationships. Not that we'll ever be perfect, but God calls us to do what we can through his power so that people will know who God is and they can give him glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Nehemiah. Thank you that you, for the ways you work in the lives of the Jews and how you work in our lives today too. Help us learn to love you above everything with a love that orders all other loves. And love that, let that love melt our hearts and shape our lives so that we love our neighbors as ourselves at will. 
and through the living, through living a life of love, let us be salt and light for you, so all will be drawn to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.